Gilman Scholars, this is your captain speaking. Get ready for takeoff. Hello there, listeners, and happy Women's History Month from the A. Gilman Podcast and the Gilman Scholarship Program family. If you didn't know that March was Women's History Month, well, now you do and can celebrate along with us and our special guests for this episode. But before I introduce her, I did want to congratulate all of the winners for the giveaway for our last episode, including username Brogle, B-R-O-G-U-L-E, who left us an amazing review on Apple Podcasts, and everyone should go do the same. Brogo, please reach out to us via Instagram and Twitter to claim your prize. Now, as always, and without further ado, my name is Sarah Murray. I am the host of the Agilin Podcast, and it is my pleasure to officially welcome Ifra Akhtar, editor-in-chief of Modest Magazine and the creator of the Muslims Abroad Guide for Rutgers University. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me um, as you. Thank you for the lovely introduction as well. Uh, my name is Ifra. I was born and raised in New Jersey. I'm a graduate of Rutgers University, where I studied religion and women and gender studies. I'm the editor in chief of Modest Magazine, a digital publication that explores and redefines modesty. And I consider myself a forever student because I love learning, a writer <laughs> and a food enthusiast. Ooh, same here. Love to eat, love to learn about eating, anything involving food, I am with you there. Well, truthfully, you were probably the most perfect guest we could have had for this episode of Women's History Month. I mean, you were selected as a scholar for the Institute of Women's Leadership at Rutgers. As you've already stated, you've taken um, several courses involving women and gender studies. You were also taking several courses in women's leadership, all while you were in university. Um, well, first, I just want to know especially because I personally don't know much about such a course of study. What were some of your expectations going into these courses? And what do you think are some of the common misconceptions about studying women and gender studies? So funny enough, I did not intend to do women's and gender studies in college. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) I was actually a biology major um, going in as a freshman. And then during my first semester, I took... um, a Victorian literature class. And then I also took um, a religion class and both of those like really resonated with me. So I was like, uh, I might take some classes for like pre, cause I was on a pre-med course, but I think I'm going to shift to like this more cause it interests me. And um, yeah, so I eventually like went into women's and gender studies, kept my major as religion and going in, I honestly, didn't know anything like I feel like there's this misconception that at least I personally had to and I know a lot of my friends would joke about it where we would be like oh feminists they're like man haters and <laughs> like they just like want to like tear down men or something and I'm just like I was thinking that as going into these courses but it's not like that at all um I feel like feminist studies gets like a bad rap because people are like oh what 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 does that even mean yeah but (laughs) what do you do with that (laughs) yeah and I feel like it was kind of life-changing for me I didn't expect to uh, resonate so well with what I learned in these classes and the biggest so like yeah the biggest misconception was oh these classes are like for 
people that like hate men or something. But with the theories and the frameworks I learned from my classes, it was mainly focused on like reframing perspectives. And Mm. it was in these classes where I first was asked um, about my own experiences, like as a Muslim woman throughout um, like my educational life and like my societal life. And I never even asked myself those questions. So I feel like it really took me, um, it gave me the ability to pause and really evaluate my life from like a completely different lens. I actually had a similar experience. Um, I ended up studying sociology and anthropology in undergrad as my minors. And I didn't know what that was, but I took a a single class as a requirement for freshman year. And the fact is that these courses helped me to question things I I didn't even think were questionable, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better phrase, turn of phrase. So I definitely resonate most strongly with you kind of falling into something that ended up being something that was incredibly eye-opening and changed your perception on life and, you know, misconceptions about liberal arts majors in general and whatnot. But the fact that it's typically whatever those misconceptions are, they're obviously in most cases incredibly untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also say that too, from having a both STEM as well as a liberal, a very liberal arts um experience. That's very cool. But what do you, I mean, obviously you have felt an ima- a massive impact and value from your experiences with these, with these courses of study, but what do you think the value comes from in terms of studying women's history, gender norms, etc.? So I, again, I, as I mentioned before, it comes in like the ability to shift your perspective. And this also ties into so much of the work that I do for Modest, where media is kind of what creates our culture nowadays, like anything that exists in the media, like whether it's photography, videos, art, um, it's adding like a new narrative to what we know about our world and how we understand our identities and how it all fits together. And I definitely feel like being a woman and gender studies uh, minor, but also paired with like what I learned in my religion classes really allowed me to question like who is controlling this narrative? Where am I um, getting my information from? Like if I'm reading a book, what is the book saying? And who is the author that's writing it? Because I'm obviously getting their perspective. So that was really crucial for me um, in the work I do for Modest, just kind of like being able to question, like, where does our information come from? Why do we believe certain things about certain groups of people? Um, Why do we believe certain things about our own identities? So that's where like the value from that, those courses really like stands. And if it wasn't clear already to our listeners, I am not entirely familiar with the coursework involved in such studies. Um, But I am also curious to know, because like I've already mentioned, as a sociology major, I felt that, you know, there were certain narratives, there were certain stories that just really weren't highlighted or prioritized, at least as a part of the core classes for my sociology and anthropology studies. So in your experience, did did you feel as though there were parts of history or maybe certain people's stories that were prioritized over others or who was missing in your courses that you wish you had learned more about? I um, am extre- I feel extremely lucky that the program I was part of, the Leadership Scholars Program with um, the Women and Gender Studies Department, um, it really focused on highlighting like diverse voices. Like we did read a lot of like 
Black and African-American feminist works. We read some Asian feminist works and that was amazing for me. But I feel like in comparison to like the amount of like work done by like white feminists, they were still like smaller Mm -hmm. on the scale, I guess. Like there's not enough, there's not a large enough body of work or focus on those types of things. Um, But I honestly felt like there was really a good, um, scattering of like voices and people represented in the classes that I did take and what the textbooks and the material didn't cover I had like diverse students and peers that would chime in with their voices and what they read so it was just really it was very wholesome I would say like I learned as much from like the stuff we read and my professors as I did from like my peers Well, I'm glad it was such a holistic experience. And this is honestly a truly, truly off the cuff question that I'm just curious for your opinion on, because you said that, unfortunately, the body of work from more diverse voices just frankly doesn't exist in the same capacities as mainstream white voices. But why do you think why do you think that is? So I feel like it's either because people might not feel like their work has value or and want to share it. Um, I know that's something that's a barrier that could hold a lot of people back. I certainly felt that before I was developing Modest, like I didn't really know if I should be able to be creating a resource like this. Another, if there's any type of language barrier, I mean, these resources might exist in like their native languages, um, but they're not translated in English and then vice versa, like stuff in English might not be translated in their languages. So there might be a discrepancy in like, communication between languages. I feel like that's one of the reasons why we don't have like a huge body of work. I know it exists somewhere, but we just aren't able to access it openly right now. But nonetheless, despite those barriers and limitations, I'm glad you still had a very um, deep as well as wide experience in accessing various diverse voices in your courses. So that's great to hear. And, you know, as we're talking again about the importance of representation of diverse voices and backgrounds. You come from a very intersectional, intercultural background, being both a Muslim woman from an ethnic minority background. That intersection of identity, you don't necessarily see, unfortunately, taking advantage of study abroad as much as I think we all wish we did. But what were some of your initial challenges to starting your study abroad journey to South Korea with the Gilman Scholarship? So the biggest challenge was money. And that's where the Gilman perfectly came in. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, money and definitely trying to convince my parents. So I'm a Muslim woman. Uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college. I was also living away from home for the first time um, mm-hmm. in a dorm. And all of these changes were already like so much for my parents to take that I always thought, oh, study abroad, they're never going to allow that. <laughs> but um that's not what happened. They did allow it. So yeah, I feel like we become so good at telling ourselves that we can't do certain things or, oh, maybe that's not possible for me that we end up believing it. And that's Mm. basically where I was when I first started thinking about study abroad. And if it wasn't for the fact that I was actually placed as a work study student in the study abroad office, I don't think I would have been able to have such a great experience 
with discovering the Gilman and eventually deciding to study abroad. So yeah, I was placed as a work-study student in the Rutgers Study Abroad office and being surrounded by advisors that were constantly sending students that looked like me, that came from similar backgrounds like me to pursue their like global education dreams. I was like, well, if they're doing it, I'm witnessing them doing it. Why can't I do it myself? So it was meant to be, essentially. Great job, work study. (laughs) Yes. And I know that, um, and perhaps your parents felt this as capacity. I know I have and have heard stories of similar parental hesitation, specifically around facing gender, racial, or even religious intolerability abroad. Those are incredibly valid and sometimes, unfortunately, realistic fears of studying abroad as a member of, a, of the BIPOC community. Um, but how would you say that you created safety for yourself and what resources specifically did you use to support your faith um, while you were abroad? My parents had two main concerns, which was um, how was I going to pay for all of this? And also they thought that people were going to have negative reactions to me towards me being a Muslim while I was abroad, um, which is a lot of fear that parents have, especially after like the post 9-11 era. Um, so I asked myself, how could I answer my parents' questions? How could I placate their fears um, from a religious standpoint? And then also like answer their questions like on basic things like where I was going to be studying abroad, like housing, food, all of that stuff. So I actually turned to the Quran, which is the holy book of Islam. And there is a beautiful verse in the Quran that says, we've created like people of many nations so that you may learn from one another. And I did bring that verse up to my parents. And I was like, you keep saying that our religion wants to shelter us and all of this stuff you keep like using religion as like an excuse to prevent me from studying abroad but look like clearly in our holy text it says that like we're meant to like learn from each other that's why there's so much diversity in the world and it's beautiful and I guess when I really started to show them how much I cared about this to to the point where I was showing them things like this they decided to take it more seriously. And that definitely made them feel more comforted in the fact that I did take the time to look at religious texts. That That means a lot, especially I don't have much insight into the Quran itself, but that is a beautiful verse that I think speaks to anyone as a reason, like just go and explore other people, their cultures, because there is value in that. And kind of on the same line, let's talk about that resource guide that you made, Muslims Abroad, that you created for Rutgers, and most importantly, the Muslim community at the university. I'm just, I would love to know what has been the response to this from other Muslim students, and why is it important that a resource like yours exists and should be provided? Yeah, so the resource, um, it's an e-guide, and it basically reads like a mini book. Um, It talks about how to first start have the conversation with your parents. Um, uh, the guide also addresses questions like, how are you going to find halal food while you're abroad or alternatives to that? And also like places of like worship, mm-hmm. like if other countries or universities have, have like prayer rooms or mosques where students can go to, because that's important to know, especially if you're studying abroad for a semester versus like a shorter program. So the reaction to my Muslims Abroad Guide from students has been very positive. 
I've talked to a lot of students, um, my friends, and then some uh, students that came into the study abroad office that were connected to me uh, by the advisors. And they never thought to ask themselves the questions that I presented in the guide. And it's sometimes just nice to have something for a targeted population because you know you're like covered, you know. 100%. Um, also, yeah, exactly. So, um, and also, like, I got the chance to present at Diversity Abroad, um, the national conference, and a lot of people gave me great positive feedback there, too, that they didn't even think about their Muslim students. Um, so this is definitely something that needs to exist. Before I was developing this guide, I actually went online and I searched study abroad resources for Muslim students, and I couldn't find anything. Nothing at all? That, yeah, nothing oh, at all. It was... <laughs> Exactly. So my guide obviously addresses a gap in the study abroad literature that is out there. But it's also most definitely not a niche because of the massive population, both the diversity abroad and the records that has appreciated it so much. Oh, well, yay for you. That's exciting to hear. And I guess similarly to what you're saying of just the unfortunate lack of study abroad literature that existed for this group of people that want to study abroad but don't have the resources for it or at least the information at hand to know can is this a possibility for me um there's also a lack of knowledge existing resources and representation when it comes to study abroad including muslim voices but do you, i think you could probably draw similar observations from the mainstream u.s feminist movement doesn't necessarily include a lot of perspectives um, in what it portrays as U.S. feminism. So in your opinion, how has the, the U.S. feminist movement either not left room for different feminist values or even on accident fails to include other perspectives, but especially from Islamic feminists, for example? Okay, this is a huge question. <laughs> Ooh, talk to me. Talk to me. <laughs> but yeah, I have problems, concerns, yeah, for this. So the feminist movement in the US is this massive, massive movement. And even though like I'm I did woman and gender studies in college, I feel like all of those courses still was like introductory to what's actually out there. And the biggest problem I think exists in the feminist movement is that there's this immense pressure for women to like break through the glass ceiling for you to like achieve that like boss lady status where mm -hmm. I feel like we ignore issues that women face like domestic abuse, healthcare. Do women even have money for sufficient food? It's like this narrative is pushed, especially in the media where you have to break the glass ceiling, you have to walk through the door, work hard. And yeah, working hard is important, but what if the person doesn't even have a door to walk through, you know? Sure. So we have to think about how the feminist movement can really look at systemic problems and try to enact systemic uh, change rather than focusing on just being a CEO or working hard. It's more complex than that. And this is where the idea of like intersectionality comes through, where it's like, we're not looking at people um, as Sep like we're not looking at people's identities as separate parts, but everything coming together. And the analogy I like to use for this is um, when you're baking a cake, if you're going to invest in quality ingredients, 
then all of the layers of your cake and everything that's going to go into making it will come together beautifully. And I think that's what feminism or the feminist movement needs. We need to invest in really understanding what women's needs are, like women on the ground, a woman from different backgrounds, women from different ethnicities. And once we invest in that, we can really try to enact positive change. Could not agree more. And that cake analogy made me a little hungry, but it also made a lot of sense. Um, those those people who have made it to a top, who've broken that glass ceiling, as well as just other allies that are on the ground, like you said, what could those people do to help lift up Islamic female voices within this U.S. movement that we call it, but is not necessarily representing the entire U.S. and the diversity of women within this country? Yeah, so... the biggest thing I would like to say is don't assume things. Don't assume something about Islam as a religion just because the media portrays it a certain way. I know a lot of people are like, oh, Muslim women are oppressed because they their religion forces them to wear the hijab, like the headscarf. But that's not true. Um, it's a personal choice. But a lot of people kind of just write Muslim women off as not being feminist. And that offends me because I consider myself as a feminist and like people think that I'm oppressed. So I would say that allies can really um, reach out to Muslim women, their friends or people, even on social media. There's so many people out there that are willing to share their stories and just have a conversation. We need to really listen to each other. Also, you could read and study up about Islam or read uh, Muslim feminist work like Layla Ahmed is great, Asma Lamarbet, um, Yasmin Moghead. Those are just some examples of people whose work you can reach out to. When we're talking about, you know, what allies can do to lift up you know, Islamic female voices. Um, you are currently doing that for your own community and working to lift up women's voices who are part of the Islamic faith through your brand and your magazine, Modest. So could you tell us a little bit more about what you felt creating this magazine and why you felt it was necessary in your eyes and what you also felt maybe about what was missing from authentic diverse representation in front of the camera, especially within the fashion industry, which Modest focus on. Mm -hmm. So this is a topic that I'm very passionate about. Um, ever since I was little, I would collect fashion magazines and I would always like cut out models and clothing and like collage them and have them up on my walls. And I never saw someone that literally looked like me in those magazines mm. um and especially considering like modest dressing a lot of the fashion magazines I was reading women were either like very showy with the clothing and I was like well I could modify that outfit but like I can't exactly like rock that look you know um <laughs> so I really wanted to create something where like little girls like how I felt when I was younger could look at and be like hey like there's diverse people in here I can see myself doing this um this person is taking into consideration my like religious uh choices of dress as well so that's mm -hmm. really where modest started I wanted to give a visual medium to this problem because a lot of uh companies right now are hopping on to like the modest fashion bandwagon so instead of 
big business and big brands capitalizing on this market? Where are the voices Mm -hmm. that were already doing this before it was considered profitable, like designers like Hannah Tajima, Rabia Z, Anissa Hasiban? So it's like, where are those voices? So I want Modest to give uh, coverage to those voices and to say, like, We've been doing this from the beginning. It's not something new. It's not a trend. They remind people, you know, where this started. Exactly. That's very important. Very important. But I am incredibly sad to say that that was all the questions that I had for you and does conclude this episode of the podcast. But before I officially let you go, as our listeners know, I always love to ask our guests a really fun question to conclude our episodes. What is a dream travel destination or international experience that you'd like to have in the future? This is such a hard question. That's what everyone says. <laughs> it is because I just feel like it's impossible to pick. Like I would love to do a dessert culinary world tour, like just <gasps> desserts from all over the world. That would be amazing. But if I were to pick a destination, I would say Japan. Um because I really am inspired by Japanese fashion. And before I officially let you go, I do want to know if you could share with our listeners a way for them to get in contact with you after the episode airs. Yeah, so you can reach me at my LinkedIn. Um, Also, you can follow me on Instagram at Ifra, like my first name, Crystal. Uh, You can also reach me at modest.magazine, which is on Instagram, and then modestmagazine.co. Ifra, well, thank you so much indeed for joining us today. And listeners, make sure you've gone ahead already and downloaded this episode and subscribed to the Eagleman podcast so you are the first to be notified about future episodes, such as our next one that will be dropping on April 1st. See you then and talk soon. Till next time.